I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bridge Street Capital Partners is a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital market transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in the mining, energy and tech sectors. If you are a Section 708 sophisticated investor, and would like to be on Bridge Street's distribution list for their upcoming capital raises, please send them your details via an email to invest at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and mention The Bip Show in your message. Now, on with the show. How are you now? Broadcasting from the VFS studios at Milsons Point, Sydney. You are listening to the all-new BIP Show, Season 4, Episode 6. We've done six episodes. Incredible. Don't forget, subscribe, rate us wherever you get your podcast. You've heard it before. And a reminder, all the financial information in this podcast is general in nature. Only speak to a professional advisor about your needs. I happen to be a professional advisor here at VFS Group. My name is James Whelan. I'll be your host this afternoon. This afternoon, Episode 6 is recorded in Sydney. It is 3.52 p.m. on March the 31st, 2022 AD, last day of the quarter. Budget has just been handed down, and wasn't it a cracker? One of the first times in my life that I actually could not watch the budget. Usually I have a bottle of wine and a good steak, and I watch our, uh, our nation get carved up into whatever they got. A lot of stuff in there that wasn't expected, a lot of stuff that absolutely was expected. It was an election budget. Will it work as an election budget? Where are the angles for the economy? What are the angles for infrastructure? Where is my free money? Every single time a budget comes up, I always just think, well, I'm just going to be the guy who's right in the bracket of just getting absolutely screwed. And I think that maybe this happened again. To help us figure out just how screwed I am and how screwed you probably aren't, uh, if you'll excuse the language, um, is Adelaide Timbrell, ANZ Senior Economist, who joins me in the studios of Milson's Points. The first time we've actually met face-to-face um, uh, an, an amazing star at ANZ, uh, someone I'm confident that I, I really hope you'll still be coming on the show once you are the governor of the RBA. <laughs> um, Adelaide, how are you now? Good, thank you. How are you? And it's so great to be doing this one face-to-face. It really is, isn't it? So um, first off, the, the, the weird thing, they leaked that I was going to get $1,000 in free money a couple of weeks ago and then... This happened on, I was on Ausbiz. I was, I was doing the last call um, on Ausbiz on Friday afternoon. Bottle of beer in my hand. We're on live TV and we've got um, Jeremy, I can't remember his last name. Is he, is he economist over at PwC? Really great guy. And he starts talking about $250. And, I, and, and the look on my face is just like, wait, I've already spent $1,000 that they told me I was going to get. Um, where's, uh, where's the rest of my money? So what your, your takeaways from the budget um, vis-a-vis, or specifically with regards to direct injections of cash to people, um, first and foremost, because that's what everyone's talking about, the $420 for people who earn more than 126 k I think it less is. Than less than 126 k that's right. Yeah, that's I tried right. to sneak it through. I'm still not going to get any of that free money, so it's okay. Um, 
What were your What were your main takeaways from the budget? Yeah, so there are a lot of cost of living related policies in the budget. As you said, there's four hundred and twenty dollars as a tax offset for people making less than one hundred and twenty six k. That coincides with the last year that we have the low and middle income tax offset, which is that thousand dollars that you get as an offset if you make between about sixty and one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. We're also seeing the freezing of half of a fuel excise, and that means that twenty two cents per litre that usually would be going to tax from petrol is no longer going to tax. So we are getting a lot of injections of cash through those things. Uh, And then $250 one-off payment for anyone who has a concession card or is receiving any type of government welfare. So what all these things do is they add cash into the economy, they get people spending more, and they stimulate um, spending and business revenue. What that does is it's generally aimed at helping businesses feel safer to invest more, to hire more workers, and to keep the economy ticking along. But the economy was already ticking along. Yeah. So we already had so much business um, confidence and investment that we were actually, we've already seen the unemployment rate go down to 4%. It hasn't been below 4% since about 1977. We've also got more people working in the economy than ever before. We're starting to see wage pressure. And so for the point of where we're at in the economy, which is that It's actually ticking along well. There's a lot of momentum. We probably didn't need this much um, stimulus of cash. You know, we've already got a lot of households who have saved heaps of money over the last two years from lockdown. There's about $250 billion of extra household deposits that wouldn't have happened if COVID had not have occurred. Mm. And so all that comes together to be like, well, yeah, you're spending extra money. And yes, the cost of living is something that certainly is affecting people's confidence. It's something that we're seeing petrol prices are being Googled seven times more than usual. But, you know, it hasn't actually affected people's discretionary spending. When we have a look right into the credit card and debit card data, what we're seeing is people are still spending more on dining every week. They're still spending more on clothing. We're seeing travel spending, particularly uh, travel agents. So, you know, people who are doing that first step for more spend to come, it's all happening. So so as much as um, there's a lot of confidence issues around the inflation and cost of living, the government probably didn't need to, there's no economic reason that the government needed to push all of this cash through. Well, except for the fact that the, for the obvious one is that what the headline for the election coming up, it's, it's, it's an obvious election budget. What do you think? Do you think that do you think that there's things that are in there? Now I know that it might not be so close to your wheelhouse on this one, but I'm, I, I'd, I'd hope that it's something that people stay close to. Uh, is it targeted to? Well, I, you know what? Actually, I'm just going to go straight to it. Do you factor in? Sorry, do you factor? I've got to, I've got to ask the question. I, know you can, I can see you looking at me. This is one of those things about going face to face. But um, Labor is currently paying a dollar thirty-five to form government. They're, they're absolute special red hot favourites. Um, how much are you factoring a Labor government, which is almost, according to Sportsbet, it's a sure thing. However, I mean, that was basically the same odds as last time and somehow ScoMo managed to jag it in. Great. They've got the power of a budget behind them with funny money in people's pockets, taking the fuel excise off. That's going to be a, a huge winner, I think. Let's, let's be fair on this one. Infrastructure spend, pretty cool. Um, jobs, boots on the ground. People have jobs. People are getting paid. People are probably getting paid a little bit more as well. Yes, the cost of living is going up. People could probably understand that. How much are you factoring in a Labor government into your dim sums? So this is a surprisingly easy question, this election, when it comes to our economic (laughs) forecast. It's usually not quite as easy as this. It wasn't easy last time. I'll tell you that for free. It really wasn't. So 
what we've seen is with the rhetoric between Liberal and Labor is broadly they have the same approach to budget deficits and the economic recovery. And what that means is they're both saying the way that we get the budget deficit down is we let people make more money, then they pay more tax, and then we just slow down our fiscal stimulus um, at the same time and it all goes away without having to raise taxes or be really austere about it. They're both saying things along those lines. When they talk about their budget priorities, they're also running along similar lines. And because the budget um, and the election is at a really pivotal moment for both parties, they're both really looking out into Australia and saying, well, what's going to make the most people happy? And no matter what your ideology is, when you're looking to the same people and asking them the same question, you're going to get a very similar answer. Mm. And so for that reason, you know, our economic forecast wouldn't change much between a Labor win and a Liberal win because in the short term in particular, say the 12 to 24-month horizon, they're likely to be approaching um, the broad macroeconomic piece in a similar way. And the way I see it is um, who wins, it doesn't depend, it's not going to affect economic growth or the economic outlook, but it will affect, you know, which sectors or which specific people are going to be better off. Okay. So it's more of a distribution argument around the effects of a Labor or Liberal win rather than a total economic growth argument. Now, we'll get to ec- economic growth in a second. Now, we're not always about just the facts and figures on this one because I actually, I actually was just triggered on something that, that happened a few years ago. I and you, and you mentioned about factoring in a Labor win. At the last election, I'm not going to lie to you, we a lot of people in the industry actually did not have a plan for what they were going to do if Labor actually got in with regards to negative gearing, with regards to franking credits and what was going to happen to the banks, what was going to happen to housing. What, what, th- let's just talk just openly if we can. What was your factoring in for three years ago with, with, with that election or if you can even recall that? Um, so there was the main thing that we were looking at at that election was whether housing market activity would slow down in mm-hmm. the lead up to the election. Yep. And the more that housing market activity slowed down the lead up, the more worried people were about those um, movements around, you know, negative gearing and other investment property yep. um, reforms. Um, but I think that was something and, you know, you have to do this with some economic variables. This really can be like a bit of a wait and see. Um, And even though at the time we were relatively confident that a change in some of those measures was not going to have a material impact on headline figures like housing prices or uh, economic growth. So housing prices might have moved maybe in that kind of 1% to 2% range and that wasn't enough for us to have a huge um, flow-on effect of our other economic forecast. So, again, you know, and this is the really big difference between something that impacts an individual in quite a big way or something that impacts one decision in your financial life in a big way but doesn't necessarily impact the headline of GDP, unemployment. At the end of the day, like, whether, you know, negative gearing or cash injections happen or not, um, these, in the grand scheme of things, these policies are smaller um, than some other policies, like, say, a minimum wage hike, um, which would affect a lot of people every single week, rather than a small amount of people making one decision or another at one point in time. Okay. Well, the, yeah, okay, I can sort of see, see that. The, um, the reason that I ask that is because I remember that, that as myself, an old political hack, from a thousand years ago, the only ever, and this is on Macquarie Street in Sydney, working for the state guys. The 
the only time that I only saw opposition. And there used to be an expression, and there is an expression that, that, that's as old as time itself, is that oppositions don't win elections. Governments lose elections. The reason why, one of the reasons, one of the thousand reasons why Labor didn't win the last election is because they went to, they went to the polls with franking credits and with the negative gearing thing. And they, they really didn't need to. You know, an opposition doesn't need to go out with a whole bunch of policies, especially if the government is so smelly as they actually were at that particular time. And that's why it was sort of a bit of a shock. What if, I mean, if there's a sweep, if there's a huge swing, I mean, we just saw the South Australian election. I know that I, this isn't a political talk show, but, but, but I mean, it's going to be related to what we're sort of all investing in at the moment. If there's a huge swing, as we just saw in South Australia, if there's a swing nationally at a, at a federal level, Labor gets in with a mandate, they can dig up all these old policies um, and these things that they, that they don't you don't have to implement the things, you don't have to not implement the things that you, that you go to the polls with. They can start talking about negative gearing. They can start talking about franking credits. These things are, so all of a sudden do actually start to come up. If you go in with a mandate, you can legalise whatever the hell you want. That's, uh, that's one of the things that, that I don't think a lot of people are factoring in if there's actually a huge swing against, against the coalition. If Labor, if there is a red sweep, Potentially, I'm not saying it's a bad or a good thing. I'm here try, try, being impartial, but hey, that'll be a hell of a thing, wouldn't it? Yeah. So I think that is probably going to be the biggest economic impact we can see from the election if there is that huge majority that comes in on the Labor side. So even in that situation, though, um, what we see over the next 18 months is still unlikely to change. And there's a couple of reasons behind that. And this is something that applies not only to the government, but also to the Reserve Bank. We've gone through two years of, you know, obviously huge amounts of volatility. We've had COVID lockdowns. We've got the Russia-Ukraine thing. We've got the oil price thing. Um, You know, everything feels like a challenge. And I think people are, you know, very hesitant to support anyone who's going to rock the boat on the economic recovery. Because as much as, you know, in some ways the economic recovery is is done and we've got unemployment really low, we've got wage pressure building more than it has in the last 10 years, we've got GDP growth um, this year could be 4.2%, you know, it's all looking really good. That doesn't mean that people aren't going to arc up if you start to pull things back too quickly. And we see that, you know, we've seen that in the um, share market as well. There was a taper tantrum in the US when they did quantitative tightening too fast. And just like that, um, you know, the government, if they pull fiscal stimulus back too fast and try to get us back to normal too quickly, people might find that that's too quick, even though when we look at the economic data, it's not too quick. We're actually in an extremely, like we've got an extreme stimulus right now for how well our economy is going. Any other time when the unemployment rate was this low, we'd never have a 0.1% cash rate. We'd never have this amount of fiscal stimulus coming in. So I think um, because of that, there's no part of any public sector institution that's going to do anything wild in the next 12 months. I think the Australian public uh, in a lot of ways has had enough of wild. It's all been external uh, and they're not going to want to see it from a public sector institution, even if it's good for the economy, even if it's what people might have actually really wanted to vote in five years ago. And so we are seeing that kind of people just want a bit of certainty. You know, we want to be able to calm down. We want to be able to see things go well without um, anything changing. And we've also seen both the Labor and Liberal really um, go pretty quiet on any kind of reform. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that as well I think speaks pretty strongly to what we will see over the next 12 months, which is 
moving levers but not actually changing any systems. Now, let's go back, talking about the biggest lever that there is, the RBA, what, and I call it the biggest lever, but do you think, uh, how, without overstepping your mark, sorry, Adelaide, without overstepping your mark, because I know that, I know that everyone needs to be cool, what, um, what do you think the RBA is going to do now? And I always ask this question, what should, when eventually you do become the governor of the RBA, and I do hope that you come back on the show when, once, once, once you are initiated, I suppose it works, and you learn the secret handshake at, at the Reserve Bank, what, um, a thousand years from now, as we're both old people with old wrinkles, and I'm still trying to make this podcast a real thing. What um, what would you do? So, in terms of, I'll say what I think the RBA will do first, and yeah. then I'll go to what I think the RBA should do. So, excellent, good, good, good. And I will make sure that you finish that too. What I think the RBA will do is that within the next six months, we'll start to see the cash rate hikes. Yes. One reason that the Reserve Bank um, can, and this is justifiable, um, be a little bit dovish on, you know, hiking cash rates right now, is that there is still a pretty large part of our inflation that is supply-side driven. So, you know, oil prices globally, supply chain disruptions. You know, we're just one country. If we hike our cash rate, prices from other countries don't just suddenly fall. That inflation doesn't go away. I can see right now, window frames are going up 49% this month. Window frames. Yes. Build a house. If you want window frames, steel or wood, they're going up 49% from this month, and that will not go backwards. The cost of purchasing but, so, a brick in Western Australia has gone up 55% year on year. So it's, it. it's very expensive. And and some of this stuff is not something that the Reserve Bank can necessarily get a really good handle on with the cash rate. However... Yeah. The wage pressure that we're seeing, the really resilient household spending that we're seeing, and the fact that we are still seeing increases in uh, the amount of job vacancies in Australia, even though we've got more people in the workforce than ever and more people employed within that workforce than ever, so very few unemployed people, lots of people with a job, um, that's showing us that those demand-side inflationary pressure, so inflation that the Reserve Bank can control, is becoming a more important part of inflation over time. In six months, it's going to be likely a big enough portion of inflation that the Reserve Bank really has no excuse not to start hiking. Once it starts hiking, it's going to be relatively aggressive. So we think three hikes in a row, um, 0.75% by the end of this year, then five hikes next year to 2%. Yes, that's fine. And then next few years after that, and there's no exact timeline on this because, you know, the further you get from now, the more variables there are at play. The theory of bus stops, I call we it. Start yep. to, we start to think 3 to 3.5% is where they're going to stop. 3 to 3.5% is where they're going to stop. Yeah. So I speculated on the Christmas special that 4% would be a thing that, that should not be outside the realms of people's expectations, and I got absolutely shot down. Is that... Is that such a such a ludicrous thing to be thinking about at this time? I don't think four percent is a ludicrous thing. It is on the high side. Listening, Joe Masters. And no, I'm, kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but you know, I also should really note that this is not a neutral cash rate that we're expecting. We are actually expecting a restrictive cash rate at three or three point five. Yeah. So, um, that's something that will start to really cool down the economy if it does get to that point. So. That's what we think the Reserve Bank will do. We do think that they'll hike quite aggressively once they start because, um, you know, if you have to, if you find that things like the unemployment rate become less responsive to um, monetary policy on the way down, you know, it takes a lot more cash rate 
going down to, for the, to get the unemployment rate down, it mm. also means that you need to do a lot more hikes to cool it once it's overheated. Yeah. So we will see that um, relatively aggressive. What I think the reserve bank now, is yeah, now this is good stuff, <laughs> right? Okay. Look, I'm always going to be a little bit biased because I do housing as a really core part of my economic analysis, and I think that interest rates have been one of the major drivers of just a ridiculous increase in housing prices. Mm. And um, I also believe that you know at this point the risks of going too early are probably lower than the risks of going too late when it comes to cash rate hikes. Let's just go over that again. The risks of going too early are lower. Are lower. So it's so, so they're, they're moving too slow. I like they're moving slower than what I would do if I was the head of the RBA. Yeah. And you know, of course, that everyone who has an opinion on the Reserve Bank comes with all of their own biases, all of their own you know policy focuses and everything like that. Yeah. But when I look at the risks of going too late, it's you know inflation. Um, getting too high, it's um, more of an aggressive cash rate hike cycle to get it back to a point that can be controlled. When I look at the risks of going too early, it's, you know, maybe an unnecessary cash rate hike when most of the inflation is supply side driven, but I actually think there are some external benefits to that. The Reserve Bank of Australia doesn't have a mandate on housing affordability. The Reserve Bank of New Zealand recently put one in and they have, that has probably been one not the main reason, but one reason why they're going a lot faster than us. They've also got a lot more inflation. But I would be looking at housing affordability as a financial stability risk. Yeah. Because in the long term, it is a financial stability risk. We have a pension system that assumes you own your own home outright. That the generations um, of people who will have that by retirement is, you know, going away. Like, actually, have you got any stats on that? I, I actually, I honestly don't know the stats. I don't. If you don't, otherwise I'll just edit this out. Right? Um, we don't have like it's hard to have stats on what might happen in forty years. No, that's, yeah, yeah. I, was, I, I was thinking about the people that are retiring. That, that who owns their own home and who doesn't. I honestly don't. Know oh, most about. people who are retiring own their own home outright. Oh, good for them. A lot of people, yeah. Um, except if you're a divorced woman, then you. I okay. I can sort of I can see that that's wrong. But uh, this, anyway, so, so going on, do, do you think that housing? We can delve into that next time. I think maybe. Um, but I think that um, the impacts on housing that have come from the 0.1 cash rate have been a huge cost on the economy that's probably an unsung cost, mm. um, so a cost that's not being talked about enough. And um, so even though there have been reasons to be dovish and for the most part having a low cash rate during some of the peaks of COVID cases and lockdowns and uncertainty has definitely had positives, we also have to acknowledge that it's had negatives and housing affordability is one of those. And and it's not just about not being a homeowner or being a homeowner because, you know, if you've got to start a home and it goes up by 50K, but then the home you want to move into goes up by 100K, you've still lost out. Yeah. And if you're someone whose housing price has gone up, but it also means that, you know, you're still spending a lot to move house just on stamp duty alone, even even if you're, the actual price of the house is exactly the same as the house that you were in before, it creates a lot more transfer costs on the economy. It makes it harder for people to move. It makes it harder for labour mobility to be at its peak. You know, what we really should have is a housing system where as your life changes, housing can change with it. And we don't have that. And every dollar that housing gets more expensive, stamp duty gets more expensive, moving costs get more expensive. Even if you're on the winning side of it, you're still on the losing side. Mm. That takes out your ability to take risks on 
business debt, particularly if you need to save your borrowing capacity for housing. It takes away your ability to consume certain products at a certain time in your life. All of these things in the long term um, are financial stability risks. And that's why I would be a lot more hawkish on what the Reserve Bank is being. If I take a really broad view, I think that the total economic cost of a really dovish monetary policy approach, uh, those costs are bigger than a too hawkish monetary policy approach at this point of the business cycle when really the risks of pushing the unemployment rate up massively if you add you know, 50 basis points to the cash rate is almost impossible. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Okay, so what we're going to do now, and that was incredible insight. Thank you, Adelaide. What we're going to do now is a really quick um, quick run through of each of the big highlights in the budget, and also sort of I'm going to talk about a few stocks that are that, that are out there too. I've just picked a random piece of research, and thank you very much to these to these guys that have picked it with a few stocks. And you know what? If you're into the into the local stuff, here are some names for you because we're all about the names. So uh, first off, the cost of living tax offset benefits. So this is the people earning under 126k. About 10 million Australians this affects. One time, 420, uh, blaze it, cost of living tax offset. Um, first off, your thoughts on that? I think we've talked about it before. Good yeah. thing, bad thing, more money sloshy? I think it's probably for the most part unnecessary. Um, all of the same people are already getting the last of their low middle income tax offset. Good. Now, the key uh, stocks that were picked out of this report, Coles, Super Retail Group, uh, City Chic, Adairs, Collins Foods, you like your chicken, um, are seen to be benefiting, uh, well positioned to benefit from a less downbeat, low debt, less downbeat, low income consumer. They're going to buy more chicken, apparently, according to the good people at Shore and Partners, which is where I, I, I jagged this uh, this note from. That makes a lot of sense. Super Retail Group. I need a new pair of wipers. Uh, I need some oil for my car. Um, that's where it's going to go. And Coles is uh, first and foremost. It's fantastic. I've got a little cheeky feeling that maybe Aristocrat might get a few dollars as well, but that's that's very cynical and probably not not so. Uh, politically correct. But the reason why, remember we all got free money in the pandemic. Um, Aristocrat wasn't a buy then. You know why? Because we couldn't go to the pub. Um, yeah. But now, uh, but the, that's uh, that's just all part of it. So fuel excise reduction supportive of vehicle kilometres and auto-related stocks. So the fuel excise, so the 44.2 uh, gets slashed to 22.1. That's right. My maths is still as good as it could ever be. We might see petrol back below $2 a litre. Sensational. Um, thoughts? Great. Um, it's probably fine. It's not. Uh, it's not going to derail anything, but it's probably not as needed as most people think it is. Awesome. And we're looking at stocks here. Ampol. I love saying Ampol. It's like I'm back in the eighties. Um, Ampol, Bapcor, GUD Holdings, AMA Group, Eagers Automotive used to be AP Eagers, Auto Sports Group, and Viva Energy. There you go. That's one. Um, so that's auto-related stocks and um, stuff that pumps petrol. Now, the infrastructure spend, we haven't really touched on it, but um, the, as part of the government's record $120 billion 10-year infrastructure pipeline, an additional $17.9 billion uh, over 10 years has been committed to road, rail, community infrastructure projects across Australia. Um, thoughts? There's two reasons that governments put in infrastructure projects. The first one is to stimulate the economy by giving people jobs, giving people something to do. We've done that with infrastructure in the last couple of years. We Mm. don't need to do it again. Mm. The other reason is that certain things are overdue. So for some of those projects, that might be the case, and in which case it's justifiable, but it may not really have needed to happen this year. (laughs) But there's an election going on. So um, now the names that they've got here, Downer, 
DRW and seven group holdings. That's um, it sounds weird, but seven group obviously hope they own tractors. It's 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 very curious. Um, and now what we're going to talk about. So, so at the, at the back end of this one. So those are your names. That's what they've got. Thank you, Shore and Partners. I've just ripped you off completely. Um, that's all right because I do actually pay the money, so um, they owe me. Now the companies. Let's talk about actual companies and actual stuff that's that's listed with regards to actual costs companies are going to be facing input costs are still going up like you said supply side stuff and you did touch on this just uh, a few minutes ago how much do you really think that this is going to impact actual companies and actual so, so with regards to and i'll couch this so you know i love a couching the that the best investments with regards to you've got two big things that are coming in first off supply side shock so you've got the cost of buying stuff your input costs are going up and wage pressures are going up too you either transfer that through to you pass that through to the consumer and you hope that they can pick up uh, pick up the tab for it you've already done that and i reckon that in america where i mostly follow stuff they've already done that and in australia maybe they've sort of already done that as well we're cashed up we're cashed up bogans we're good to go we've been paying our way through for, for a while we've seen the price of can i talk about cauliflower i'll talk about that later cauliflower is it the price of cauliflower I, I, anyway don't make me angry so anyway look you either pass that through to the consumer or you eat it through your margins I think that a lot of the pass through to the consumer has already happened. Now you've got to start either controlling the price. So if you've got some some pricing power with regards to how much you demand that price to come through, or you've got to eat it out of your margins. If a company starts talking about eating it out of their margins, I don't want to own that company necessarily. A margin to a company is sacred. That's 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 the most beautiful rule that I learned in, in investing. How much with regards to industry, with regards to business in this country? What do you see those input costs as 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 as, as affecting what's ahead for twenty twenty two? Sure. So in the short term, it's really all about um, the the material cost. So um, that's something that we're seeing driving inflation in general. Um, but we actually are seeing some signs that that started to ease. So that's not a long-term problem. It might still be a problem for 12 months, but it's not going to be three years down the line and we're complaining about the price of timber. This is a shorter-term issue. The longer-term issue is wages going up. Very few people unemployed. There's going to be a lot of people out there thinking, oh, once immigration comes back, then wages will go back to normal. That's not the case. Um, the amount of job vacancies, the amount of job ads coming on, even as so many jobs get filled, is still going up. So we're seeing really? lots of jobs get filled, yet still more job ads out on the internet, yet still more job vacancies out in the data. So, you know, there's enough momentum to absorb that immigration as it comes in and keep unemployment low and keep wage pressure strong. Wow. We have seen structurally over the last 30 to 40 years in Australia a decrease in the labour share of income. So when a company sells a product, the percentage of the cost of that product that is labour has been going down. That's because um, that we've really been able to squeeze wages. We've, companies have taken part of productivity growth and given it to themselves in profits rather than through wage growth. Yep. What we're going to see now is that wage growth is not going up because we're getting more productive. Wage growth is going up because everyone's got a job. Yep. And so if you want an extra worker, you've got to really work hard to get them to come to you. And you can give people all the flexible work arrangements you want, but at some point you're going to need to give them a pay rise. Show me, show me some salad. 
especially okay. because everyone else is already, is already giving them all that stuff because we're, we're all doing that dance. So what we're actually going to see is a reversal in the labour share of income. So rather than labour becoming a smaller part of the pie when it comes to cost, it's actually becoming going to become a bigger part of the pie, not because each person is contributing more and getting paid to contribute more, but because it's just harder to get people into the company. Yeah. And that's going to be really the biggest risk to profit margins that we see in the next couple of years. Yeah, I, I, I'm confident on that, which means, okay, so if margins do come backwards, first of all, okay, you, know, you, you said something about immigration. Is that, are you serious that even with all of the immigration that we haven't had for two years, that with the immigration that is could possibly be ahead of us, that that's not going to fill the gap in the labour force? So what we're seeing at the moment is that there's so much demand for labour that even as immigration comes back, there's still going to be the kind of balance where employees have a lot more bargaining power than employers. Good. It, it, it will be, you know, it's not as if immigration doesn't matter, um, but it won't. There, we don't have enough people coming in that it would actually push our wages back to what they have been over the last ten years. And the other thing that's really important to remember with immigration is it's not just people coming in and adding to the pool of labour. It's also people coming in and adding to the pool of spending. Mm. So they're not just coming in and and being an extra worker. They're also being an extra customer, which allows businesses to expand and need extra workers. So yep. it's something that, you know, depending on the um, approach of immigration and depending on the economic landscape, it can have uh, effects in any direction. Okay. Well, look, I, I think they're about wrapped up here. Is there anything else you want to touch on? No, I think if there's one thing I can say about, you know, the budget and the economic outlook is that we're we're very low risk of the economy being derailed, even as interest rates go up, even if we do have a small period of time where inflation is going up faster than wages, we have a very strong outlook for the economy. There's a lot of momentum. Households are resilient. They've got heaps of savings on average. <laughs> um, we've got businesses looking through disruptions. Who are these people yes. with these savings? Anyway. And, <laughs> and um, you know, when we look at the budget, it's very spendy for how well we're doing as an economy. It is very spendy. And, uh, I mean, for as long as iron ore is above $50 a tonne, $50 a tonne, I still, it still blows my mind at that one. If you sell, you've got to sell 20 tonnes of iron ore to pay for it iPhone. Yeah, that makes sense. Does it make sense? Anyway, yeah, it does. Thousand dollars. Yeah. Yep. Twenty tons of twenty ton <laughs> twenty tons of iron ore. That's a thousand dollars that you get at fifty dollars a ton. That's an iPhone. If you sort of put sort of cost to cost, try and think about that and exactly what we're digging up and sending overseas for once only. Put that budgeting in for fifty dollars a ton. We're making more than fifty dollars a ton. So there's there's money on the books, which is great, <laughs> right? That's the way that I think of it. That's the way they think of it as well. There's a lot of cash sloshing around. There's so much sloshy cash. So good. All right. We're good here. Thank you, Adelaide, for coming on the show. Uh, uh, Bridge Street Capital Partners is a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specialises in equity capital markets transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in the mining, energy and tech sectors. Sophisticated investors who want to hear about Bridge Street's upcoming capital raises can send their details to invest at bridgestreetcapital.com.au. Also, special mention to Shoreham Partners, for the research, which I nicked off them, thank you very much. Like I said, I do pay you anyway for some other stuff, so you owe me. Cheers, guys. Don't f- don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on the BIP Show, um, in iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Good podcasts, also bad podcasts. Uh, we're at Twitter, at underscore BIP underscore show. 
and we're on Facebook too for some reason. I can't understand why. I've got all of the good stuff on my website at Wheel and Capital. Um, Google Wheel and Capital, and there's links to the BIP show individually. For some reason, also, I am on Twitter at James Wheelan42, and you are at Adelaide Timbrell. You own your name. It's incredible. I didn't have to put a number. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the show is produced by Drunk Monkeys in a Lunatic Asylum, and we will catch you next time. Adelaide, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Um, let's go and get a beer later, and thank you very much. Have yourselves a great day. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.